Most of you know Shelly and I are trying to uh, build a house out of the farm. <laughs> Eventually, it seems to be a struggle. And uh, as we are doing this, one of the things that is, comes at the very beginning of the process is figuring out what it is that you want to build. What is it you're trying to accomplish here? Before you can make that, that decision about how to go about it, you have to understand what the purpose is. And if you are uh, familiar with Stephen Covey or virtually any uh, leadership author or speaker, uh, you know that the first thing you need to do is begin with the end in mind. Define the win. What is it we're trying to do? So as we approach parenting, the question comes to us, what is it that you're building? What is it that you're trying to accomplish? If we're going to lay the foundation for Christian parenting, then we need to know what is it that God expects? What does he demand of parents? I know we don't like to talk about what God demands. We like to think of God as not demanding. But as we just sang, he is a good, good father. And a good father has demands of his children. So we want to make sure that as we are, are approaching this, we know exactly what it is that we're getting into. Last week we looked at Psalm 127 and discovered the idea that whatever it is, whether we're talking about parenting or any other endeavor in life, unless the Lord is behind it, it's worthless and empty. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord stands, stands watch over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. It's necessary for us to have God's purpose in mind. It's necessary for us to make sure that in our parenting, we're doing God's thing, not our thing. Now, as we get into this today, it occurs to me, it, it does every time we sing that song, Good, Good Father, that... that many of us can't relate to that. Because many of us don't have a relationship with our earthly father that reflects that. And it leaves us with lingering pain, regret, it scars us, it shapes us. Whether your father was absent or whether he was physically present but emotionally absent. Whether he was abusive, demanding, or weak, we need to understand that our fathers and our mothers are imperfect vessels. I, as I'm preparing to speak, as I have been preparing to go through this, I've been praying for the pain of those who can't relate to our Heavenly Father because of the damage done from earthly human parenting relationships. And I want you to know that God's grace is bigger than your past. And the fact that you are here, that you are taking the time out of your day to gather with God's people, or whether you're taking the time to listen to this online, the fact that you are choosing this ought to be a signal to you, a reminder that God isn't done. And whatever happened in the past, God overcomes. That said, we have a similar pain when we recognize that we have been that parent who doesn't reflect the character of God. We've made those choices. Maybe we've done everything right according to what we've been told, but we climbed the ladder to the top and found out it was leaning on the wrong building. We thought we did everything right and now we're estranged from our grown children. We did the very best we could, but we find out that we didn't have the tools in our toolbox to be able to build the right kind of home. 
I was wondering, what, what is it that makes parenting parenting? What, what is the, the goal here? Now, I know what I think is the goal, but I want to know what God says is the goal. If you want to take a look at the main, the primary end, the primary goal of parenting, it doesn't take very much looking around or even looking at your own life to realize we've been sold a bill of goods. We've been told that things are ultimately important that actually have very little importance. We've been told this is the target. And we hit that target only to find out that's not the target at all. Somebody keeps moving the goalpost. Quick Google search on the main goal of parenting. First thing that came up was from the American Psychological Association. Parenting practices around the world share three major goals. Ensuring children's health and safety, preparing children for life as productive adults, and transmitting cultural values. Well, that sounds really nifty. And from a purely clinical, evolutionary perspective, makes all the sense in the world. That's exactly the same thing that my dog can do with puppies. Ensure their well-being. Ensure their safety. Help them learn how to be productive as an adult. Every animal out there teaches its offspring how to do what the adult part of that offspring should be doing. And even to pass on cultural values. The wolf cub learns the, the way of the pack from its parents. Are we no more than beasts? Are we no different than the animals? I love watching my cattle raise their calves to see the, the, the social behavior that they have in the herd. But as I look out here and I see your faces, I want you to know you're more than cattle. You're smarter than your dog. Maybe. You're much, much more moral in your character than your cat. For sure more humble. Guys, if we're going to look at what parenting is, then we need to not define it according to a bunch of people who don't know what they're talking about. If you deny the existence of God and you see things only from a two-dimensional, flat scientific perspective, only what I can conceive, only what I can observe, only what I can understand, then my goals, my, my understanding of what reality is, is always going to be limited. There's no way around that. If we recognize that there is a God in heaven, now we may or may not understand who He is, but from just simply a theistic perspective, if there is a God who created the universe, who created us, and we're not just accidents who happen to have some cells that bump together the right way so we, you know, we're no longer fish and we're no longer monkeys, now we're better somehow. If it's not that, if it's not this picture of God creating, then all bets are off. Do whatever you want because it doesn't really matter. But if we believe that there is a God and He created and He has a purpose and a design, then it is ultimately important that we find out what it is. Otherwise, we spend our days chasing our tail, just like my cat. So if we're going to be understanding this, we need to take a look at what the Bible says as we do this today, we're going to be doing it in Deuteronomy chapter 6 primarily. That'll be our, our focus text. We're going to see this core reality. The primary goal of parenting is to raise fully formed lovers of God. Our memory verse 
for today comes from Psalm 3411. It's very simple. I hope that by the time we get done here, this would be your prayer if you're a parent. And if you are not, that it would still be your prayer as you influence those around you. The psalmist writes, come my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word today, as we walk through this text, help us to understand what it is that you said to your people Israel so long ago. Help us to understand why this matters and how it relates to us today. But Father, remind us that ultimately it's not about us. It's about you. Get our focus higher. Lord, as a body right now in this moment, we choose to surrender our minds and hearts to you. Take control of them, Lord. Be the Lord of our homes. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> as, we, um, as we begin, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's toward the beginning of the book. The first five books are, are the, the Torah Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Hopefully everybody's had a chance to find it. In this chapter, uh, in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, what we find is Moses making this, this big statement that is known throughout the world to, to Hebrew people as the Shema. Hear, O Israel. And as he says this to them, there is a call. There is a powerful call to it, not just to hear with the ear, but to take hold of it. Hear this word, embrace the truth of it, recognize the reality of what is being said. And the foundation of what he will say is the foundation of all that God teaches his people all that Moses called the people to do and, and to think and to teach. The foundation is the Lord. You may remember in Genesis 1.1, the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God. That is the theme of reality. Not only did God create everything that is created, but in the beginning, God. The uncaused cause the uncreated one the eternally existent god now why am i saying this when we're talking about parenting because that's what moses is saying to the people of israel this is what god wants them to understand and it's what he wants every human ever born to understand he is the fundamental, foundational, ultimate reality. And as long as we see God as a religious concept, something that we think about, that we aspire to, then God remains in our minds, in our hearts, a thing. Equivalent to so many other things. And we can recognize various religions as Roughly equal. They're all the same path. Everybody's trying to get to God. No, they're not. Nobody is actually trying to get to God. We're trying to create God. We're trying to come up with a God that does what we want, that allows us to be the ruler of our own lives, the captain of our own souls, the ultimate determiner, the, the ultimate determining factor of our future. And gives us stuff. That's a great God, right? I love a God who tells me how everybody else should, should live and leaves me alone. Who gives me the stuff that I want. Who watches over me in my need. Who protects me, but doesn't demand anything. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of reality. 
So Moses now, as they, as they are getting this speech, Deuteronomy is basically a big speech, from, from, in case you thought the sermon was long. You know, it will be, but it won't be this long. <laughs> Moses is giving them a second reminder of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means, the, the second law. So as, as Moses has led the people to the promised land once already, they sent spies into the land. You probably remember the story. The, the ten spies said, oh, it's a great land, but there's giants in the land. We can't do this. We need to turn around. And the two said, wait a minute, we've got God. Who cares about giants? This is, we win. That's how it works. And the people rejected God's will for them. He had, he had brought them almost immediately, not just out of Egypt, but to the promised land. He brought them out to bring them in. And they said, eh, I'm kind of not sure that God's big enough to handle my situation. And God said, you know... I'm going to help you get this lesson right. Parents, maybe you can identify with that. I'm going to help you learn. So you're going to spend 40 years wandering around in the desert to understand what it's like when I'm not doing the work for you. And yet, our gracious God still did. He gave them manna in the desert, kept them alive. Their clothes didn't wear out. As they're going through a generation in the desert, the rebellious, rejecting generation entirely died off. And now, at the beginning of Deuteronomy, they have returned, God has brought them back now to the threshold of the promised land. Only all those folks have died, or are about to, and the children will now possess the land. As they come here, Moses is reminding them of God's demands, God's law. So here's what he says. Instead of reading the entire chapter, we're going to pick up with uh, verse 4. We're going to focus on verses 4 through 9. No, I changed my mind. I, I, I wrote it down, shorten it, just do 4 through 9, and I'm not going to. So we're going to start with verse 1. It'll take me longer to give you context than to just read the context. So here's what he says, starting with verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you. This is Moses speaking again. Directed me to teach you to observe, teach you to observe, in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Now, before we get into the focus part of the text, understand what he's saying. God has expectations. God, our Heavenly Father, has certain demands. If you will be my people and obey my commands, then I will be your God and I will watch over you and bless you and I will do these things. So God has made promises that he will keep even though his people are unfaithful. But the promises that he makes to the family, if you will, of Israel do not apply to every individual within the family. Those who reject God's promises do not receive God's promises. But God remains faithful. God continues to bless the people. But notice what he says here. These are the things that God directed me, verse 1, to teach you to observe. Now this isn't to watch observe, but to keep observe, to obey. These are the commands that, that you are to learn and act upon. This is what happens when we recognize the reality of God. When we have simply a religious perspective, an inspirational faith, a therapeutic, self-help, psychological kind of faith, then it's really easy for us to do the things, to learn the concepts, to say the words, to post the memes, and be unchanged. But when we're following the one true living God, then the learning is for living. We take it in, 
and we walk it out. This is what God instructed me, directed me to teach you to observe. But he goes farther in verse 2, so that you, your children, and their children after them, implicitly he's saying not just those two generations following, but to pass the faith along, that the faith of the fathers would be passed to the children, so that those who come before are teaching and instructing the way of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, so that the children would find life in Him. This matters not because Israel was special. In fact, God goes out of His way, almost insultingly so, so to say, you're not special. You ain't nobody. The only thing that makes you special is you are mine. Every person is created for the same purpose, to have a relationship with God, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Every person. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what, what nationality you are. Every human being ever born was created for that specific purpose. But in Adam, all of us left that purpose and we inherit from him the death that he and his wife received. Because sin separates us from God, the giver and source of life. Now, if that's true of every human being, then the fact that Israel existed, that God reached into fallen humanity and said, I'm going to pull out Abram from this pagan land in Ur of the Chaldees, and I'm going to bring him out, and he makes a promise to Abraham that I'm going to bless all nations through you. He uses parenting to do this through Abraham's line. And the reason that he does it is not because Abram is better, we know him as Abraham, that he's better than anybody else, but in God's sovereign grace, he calls him, and he takes him, and he makes him something different so that Abraham could be the voice of God, could pass on the truth of God through the generations. It becomes the nation of Israel, funneled down to the tribe of Judah in the southern kingdom. And the scriptures are given to this unique people so that they could be passed on, so that the people that God has chosen, His family, if you will, could be the light to every other nation, so that everybody around the world would get to see the truth of the one true living God through the people He has chosen and appointed. Now, all of that to say, this is why it's crucial for the people of Israel, as they're entering the promised land, they don't get any of this yet. This is all totally foreign to them. Moses has been trying to teach them and instruct them, and now he's reminding them of this. But it's going to take generations of application for them to really fully feel the vibe here. And he says, look, you've got to obey. And as you obey, you've got to teach your kids to obey. So they could teach their kids to obey. So they could teach their kids to obey. So that the life and glory of God can be spread throughout the land. This is exactly what God had in mind when Adam and Eve at the point of creation in Genesis 1. When they were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. It's the first command God gives. Go make babies. Be fruitful and multiply. But it wasn't just the propagation of the species. Pretty sure he didn't have to tell them that. But the propagation of godly offspring. Of those who would know the way of the Lord. Sin broke that. And it became a struggle. And we know what happened with Cain and Abel. One turns out good. One turns out maybe not so good. And one ends up dying in early, early life, early death. Later in Genesis chapter 9, God does the same thing with Noah. After the flood, 
Everybody's wiped out. Sin has become so rampant, God judges the earth, but in His grace, He saves out a remnant. This is a pattern of what God continues to do even to this day. He saves out a remnant from those who are under judgment. And Noah and his family, the only ones left following God, not perfectly, sin came with them on the ark. They get off the ark and God gives them the very first command, go be fruitful and multiply. Same implication. Take the ways, don't hit the microphone, it's very rude. Take the ways of the Lord and pass them on through the generations so that the creation order can be reestablished, renovated the way it was intended to be. But because they brought sin on the boat with them, the same pattern happens. God knows this. So he calls out Israel from the nations. In the New Covenant, in the New Testament, he's called out his church. Not an ethnic group, but a group from all nations who are united in Christ. Not an organization, but a body of believers united to our risen King. One people. Parents passing on the faith to the children. And as they continue to pass that along, God is glorified. And the power of the gospel goes out. Now back to Deuteronomy. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is the power of the Shema. God is everything. Don't ever let the reality that God is everything, not God is in everything, but He is the centrality of all things in the universe. Everything that exists was created by Him and for Him, for His pleasure, for His glory. Moses is telling a people how to be a people. This is the establishment not only of a family, but of a nation. So if you're wondering, I don't know how this parenting thing applies to me because I'm not a parent or I'm past the parenting stage. This is the foundation of all society. It starts in the family. We need to spend a little less time lamenting what we see wrong in the White House and start focusing on our own house. Because that's where change happens. You want to see society change? You want to see the world change? Change your home. You want to change your home? Change your heart. Change yourself. That's where it begins. Now as we look at these, just very few verses here, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, there are some things that we're going to see as how we can build a godly home. We need to make sure that we're not building our thing, we're building God's thing. And here's what he says. First off, notice in verse 1, embrace the Lord on His terms. Embrace the Lord on His terms. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God reveals Himself as the one true living God. There is only one. And we worship the unity in Trinity. We, real, we realize that God is one and He reveals Himself in three eternally existent co-equal persons. Often referred to as the Godhead. That it's God and yet He exists in three persons. Still one. It's a mystery. If you want to explain it, St. Patrick gets it wrong. Everybody gets it wrong. Because it's an infinite concept. 
and we have finite minds. Except that God is who he says he is. And that's the message that Moses is saying to the people. Hear and embrace the reality that God is who he says he is. And he does not answer to us. This is the biggest problem that I see in most of how we approach, I'll say Christianity, even though the word kind of bugs me because it turns it into just some world religion. But in the way we approach thinking about God, we have a tendency to judge God. It's funny, it's okay to judge God when we say don't judge anybody else. We don't ever want to judge anybody else, but how dare God do this? What's wrong with God? What kind of a God would do that? How could a loving God even let hell exist? As if God answers to us. Now those are discussions that we can have in another text at another time. But the bottom line is, if we're going to be on board with the home that God is calling us to build, it starts by taking God as He reveals Himself. Embracing Him on His terms, not on mine. God doesn't change because I don't like His characteristics. Shoot, my wife can't even change me and my characteristics. How in the world do you think you're going to change the eternal God? And why would you? You think your small brain understands right and wrong and love and justice better than the infinite God? Kind of arrogant, isn't it? Embrace God on His terms. Notice in verse 2, love the Lord with your whole being. Love the Lord with your whole being. We see this first and greatest commandment. In, in I said verse 2, but we're looking at 4 and 5. Second verse of our passage here. Verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. What's he saying? Every part of you, the wholeness of what makes you, you, God first, foremost, above everything, the center of everything, God, period. There must be, not there should be, there must be nothing else in your life above him. No priority that is greater than God. I saw a tweet in the last 24 hours, I don't remember who put it out there, that church is a great reason to miss things, but there's no thing that's a great reason to miss church. We need to prioritize God above everything else. We need to love Him with our whole being. Notice the third point. To build a godly home, parents, we must plant God's word in your own heart. Plant God's word in your own heart. Verse 6, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Now he's going to tell them lots of places to put them. Put them on your wrist, your forehead, your doorpost. But first and foremost, this has to be in your heart. You have to plant God's word in your heart before you wear it on your sleeve, as Salty the Singing Songbook would say. Three of you remember Salty. It doesn't do any good for me to try to teach my children something I don't believe. I can't give what I don't have. If I were to offer you a million dollars... How many of you would be excited? How many of you would say, that's stupid, you ain't got no million dollars? Right? Not that exciting if I offer you something I don't have. I can't make that offer. In the same way, when we try to raise godly children out of some sense of moral obligation, out of some sense of religious structure, rather than having the Word of God planted in our heart, so that God's commands are precious to us. We are destined to fail. Kids sniff out a hypocrite real quick. And as we'll see often throughout this series, 
Values are more often caught than taught. I can tell my kids how important it is to go to church, how important it is to go to Sunday school if we had one. It's coming. I can tell my kids how important it is to have sexual purity in their lives or to save their money and to, to have uh, decent moral values. But what they're actually going to get is what they see in my life. The example of a parent is infinitely stronger than the words of a parent. If I say to my child, I love you a thousand times, it means very little compared to a life lived that demonstrates that love. Saying it, easy. Showing it is where hearts are changed. If I'm going to try to lead my children in a way that brings them to the Lord, I'm going to have to know Him myself. I'm going to have to embrace Him on His terms, love Him with my whole being, and plant His Word in my own heart. Some of you, you don't have to look up because then you know, we'll feel all guilty about it. But some of you have had children who memorize Bible verses that their parents don't know. That was convicting to me. And I didn't like it. So I started memorizing the verse with my daughter. I wanted her to memorize it, but I was lazy. The way that changes is when I say, hey, let's do this together. It's the only way that I can lead my family. I can't lead from behind. I have to lead by going there myself. That's our job as parents. Plant God's word in your own heart. Fourth, constantly impress God's word on your children. Constantly impress God's word on your children. I tried to change that word, but I just didn't find any that captured it quite as well. I like that image that the word has here of making an impression Stamping this on your children. Notice verse 7. Impress them. Impress the commandments of God on your children. How do you do that? You talk about them when you sit at home. When you walk along the road. When you, when you lie down and when you get up. In other words, this is a 24-7, 365 thing. It's not, let's go to church so we can learn about God. No, we go to church so we can gather with God's people, we can celebrate God, we can learn some more about God, but we've just spent the past six days getting ready for this seventh day. Because every day we're impressing on our children the centrality of who God is. He's everything. And if He's not everything to you, then how can you expect for Him to be everything to your children? And if there's one thing that the Bible makes abundantly clear from Genesis through Revelation is there is no halfway with God. If He is not everything in your life, that is tantamount to being nothing in your life. He will not take second place. You get to decide that as a parent. Will God be my everything? Because if He's my everything, it should never surprise my child when I say at a restaurant, hey, let's pray together. It should never surprise my child when we have a conversation about Jesus. It should never surprise my child when I say, you know what, we can't do that thing that your friends are doing or that your teachers are promoting because that doesn't honor God, and He is everything to us. I can teach my kids an awful lot of things in life. I can teach them that it's good to have a strong work ethic. And if they see Dad work hard and, and, and be excellent at his job and make money, support the family, and they think that that is somehow central to life, instead of an extension of my faith in Christ, then I fail. 
I can teach my kids that education matters. You can, you can have a better life in this world if you graduate from high school and, and even have some, some post-high school uh, training of whatever kind. And if that education becomes more important, if that's more central to life than God is, I failed. My family legacy must be a legacy of Christ or it's all empty and vain. Constantly impress God's word on your children. Embrace the Lord on his, on his terms. Love the Lord with your whole being. Plant God's word in your own heart. Constantly impress God's word on your children. Now understand, this only matters. This constantly impressing God's word on your children only matters when two things take place. First, you've done the previous three things. Otherwise, you will only embitter your children. If you are pushing them to memorize verses and, and trying to force an imposed morality on them, but you don't know Christ yourself, your children will see hypocrisy in religion and they will reject the reality of Christ. Second thing is, you need to be impressing not your framework, but God's word. Now I can make a case for my theology, my systematic theology. I can make a case for my, uh, my political preferences or my social cultural values, but the only thing that matters ultimately is I need to be tied to God's word and my kids need to know that. We don't make decisions because so-and-so taught this or I bought this new book or this is a really popular preacher or our political party says this. None of those things will last past the judgment. What does last is God's word. Our kids will be impressed when we impress upon them the importance of God's word and demonstrate that in our own lives. Fifth, remember all of this, we're seeing the primary goal of parenting here is to raise fully formed lovers of God. Our fifth point, surround yourself and your family with scripture. Surround yourself and your family with scripture. So I'm impressing these commands of God on my children by constantly talking about the things of God. Whatever we're doing, not, not just a, a formal devotion, that's great. Having a, a, a prayer time at your meals, maybe you, you, you know, read a Bible story together or, or whatever it is, that's great. But it's got to be more than that. It's an ongoing thing. Everything I do hinges on God. And then when this is, is the case, when this is central to me, then notice verse 8, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Among the Jewish people, these are known in the, from the Greek term phylacteries. So they would tie these things on. You may see these in some Orthodox settings where they'll have a little box with scripture on, on their forehead with a special little headband or, or uh, connected to their hand. If you go to a Jewish home, I, I noticed this when I was delivering UPS uh, not too long ago when I was doing that. Um, out along the lake, several Jewish homes, and you'd see a little, little box with a little Jewish symbol on there attached to the door. That's what you're doing here. You're attaching these things, these symbols of God's word, to remind you that God is everywhere and everything. He is, not, not in a pantheistic way, but he is the center of everything. Everything holds together in Him. When I go in and out of my house, I'm reminded, this is God's house. When I look down at my hand, I'm reminded that this is God's hand. My mind belongs to God. My children see these things. So in case you've gotten the impression from me, as I have often mocked the bumper sticker religion and all that kind of stuff, that it's not a good thing to have your Christian t-shirts or your Bible verses on mugs or any of those sorts of things. 
There's a place for all of that. Don't let it become trite. And don't let it become something that is just a surface thing. But anything you can do in your life to remind your own heart and mind of the constant reality of God. That He is bigger and more than all the things that you see in the life around you. And to remind your family of the Word of God constantly. These are valuable tools. Constantly impress God's Word on your children largely by surrounding yourself and your family with Scripture. Now I'm going to stop there. As you go through the rest of chapter 6, he lays out what happens. And, he, and Moses says to the people, do these things. And he comes back to the children idea again at the end. When your children ask you, why do you do this? What a great opportunity. You can tell them about how God delivered us out of Egypt, out of the bondage that we were in, to bring us into this land of blessing. We know so much more on this side of the cross to be able to explain the gospel, that God brought us out of the bondage of sin, to bring us into the bosom of His own lap, His own love, through the cross of Christ, who had no sin of His own, but became sin for us, that we might become the children of God. That needs to be so normal in your family that the reality of Christ is like breathing in and out as you reflect His reality through the relationship God, God has given you within your family. I'm going to close with some building materials. And when I say close, I don't really mean close, but this will be the last section. So... Uh, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We go from Moses to Paul. Paul, this formerly up-and-coming uh, Jewish rabbi who studied under the great rabbi Gamaliel. After encountering Christ himself, having this personal impact, he, he went from being a persecutor to being a preacher. And in 2 Timothy, he's writing to his young pastor friend by the same name. That's why they call it Timothy, in case you were wondering. And as he's writing to Timothy, who is now the pastor at Ephesus that Paul has left behind there, he's giving him instructions. And what, what captures me here in, in chapter 3 is Paul builds on the fact that Timothy was raised in a, a mixed home of Christian and pagan, but was taught the scriptures from infancy by his mother and grandmother. And as they passed the faith along to him, now this legacy has become a legacy of Christ. And Timothy, rooted in the scripture because of his upbringing, had this knowledge that he needed to put to work. And Paul draws him to that. Um, we're going to look at verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now as we turn this and apply it, in, in both of these cases, in Deuteronomy 6, Moses is talking in a big picture way. He's talking about the nation. He's talking about the people of God following God. Talking to all of the people and specifying as parents you should be passing this faith on to your children. Now Paul is speaking broadly, talking to Timothy about how to instruct what he needs to do himself and how to instruct all of the people. And he goes into various instructions later. But here he's saying... God's Word, this isn't just a man-made thing. This is the very breath of God. God spoke this. And every word of God is useful for all of these elements of teaching. We can apply this to parenting because these are the building materials with which we build a godly home. Notice this. 
instruction. God's word is useful for instruction. When we're talking about instruction, we mean teaching what is true about God and life. Teaching what is true about God and life. It is my primary job as a parent. My number one thing is to raise fully formed lovers of God. I've got to bring my children to the cross and teach them what is true and right and good. Not according to the world, but according to the word. They need to see God. Now, it's between them and the Spirit of God whether they make that choice to receive Him. I can't make that choice for them, which is a terrifying thing as a, as a dad, i got to tell you. And I praise God that my children have embraced Him and are walking with Him. But as a dad, I have to recognize God doesn't have grandchildren. They don't get in on on the fact that their dad's a pastor or their dad's a believer. I didn't get in because my mom was an obnoxiously outspoken Christian. That's a compliment. Each one of us has to come to Christ ourselves. But as parents, we have to teach them what is right. As I was looking at psychology articles about the the main goals of parenting, one of the things that stood out is people didn't agree. It, it comes down to some form of well-being, kind of nebulous. And, and uh, one uh, article, the, the doctor who was writing it cited someone else. And he said, well, I think it's well-being. And the other guy thinks it's freedom. And, and, you know, really, it needs to be value neutral. It needs to be morally open because we teach moral goods that are value neutral. I'm not quite sure how that math works. If it's a good, there's a value. But in the world, we can't figure it out. If we take God out and we decide, well, we need to teach values. I'm going to let my kids grow up, and they're going to decide for themselves whether they want to believe. Every time I hear that, I want to vomit. I promise not to do that in the pulpit. Proverbs 22.15 points out that folly is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline brings it out. It, we'll talk about discipline in another week, but it, it's, it's crucial for us to recognize what that verse is saying. I, it's, I don't think I wrote it down for you, so you can write it down. 22.15, Proverbs 22.15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. What does that mean? It means kids do stupid stuff, just like their parents. More specifically in Romans 8, we read that the mind controlled by the flesh is hostile to God and doesn't submit to God. What does that mean? It means, to borrow from Vodibachum, as I have before and certainly will again, That's not just a precious little angel that you've got there. That's a viper in a diaper. (laughs) Children, just like all of us, are bent towards sin. If you leave them alone to make their own decisions, they will go to hell. Period. End of story. None of us go to heaven. None of us avoid hell on our own merits because we're smart enough to figure it out. God gives us parents for a reason. In the same way that you wouldn't let your child experiment to figure out if it's it's safe to play in the road, you're not going to let your kid experiment to see if it's okay for your three-year-old to play with razor blades. You're going to make them buckle up in the car and put them in car seats, put helmets on them and all kinds of things to protect them from all the things in life. But you're just going to let them decide for themselves about the only thing that ultimately matters? Rest assured, they will decide for themselves. But we use that as a cop-out to abdicate our role of teaching. God's Word is useful for instruction, teaching what is true about God and life. And if you don't teach them what is true, understand the world will inundate them with what is false. And they'll be brainwashed before you know it. 
even if you're teaching it actively, even if you're surrounding them with Scripture and impressing on them constantly the validity of God's Word, you're catechizing them in sound doctrine, we don't really do that in our homes anymore, do we? Even when we're doing that, it's a constant battle because 24-7 they're being inundated with the things of the world. Man, you better be on your knees an awful lot for your children. Instruction, teaching what is true about God in life, that's a doctrinal aspect. Not just teaching them math, teaching them God's word. God's word is also useful for rebuke, a word that maybe gets a bad rap today. It's a good word. It's useful for rebuke. When we say rebuke, we mean cutting off the wrong path. Cutting off the wrong path. There, there's a hole in that road. The bridge is out. So we put up a roadblock. No, you will not go there. When we see our children going down the wrong path, we say no. We stop it. God's word is useful for rebuke. By the way, that's not just for kids. That's for all of us. God's, work re God's word rebukes me regularly. I don't like it. It's like a, a ruler to the, to the back of the hand. I don't like it. Because I like to do my own thing. And God says, hey, Zyger, no. That bridge is out. You need to turn back. God's word is useful for rebuke and cutting off the wrong path. But it's also useful for correction, redirecting to the right path. It's not enough to just tell your kids what not to do. Just like it's not enough for me to stand here and tell you, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. That's not what God's word does. God's word gives us light for the path so that we can know the right way to take. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. It's our job to positively, when we correct our kids when they're on the wrong path, we want to redirect them to the right path. Not just a negative rebuke, but a positive correction. Lastly, we see that God's word is useful for training in righteousness, which means developing Christ-like habits of living. Developing Christ-like habits of living. If we're going to raise fully formed lovers of God, which is indeed the primary goal of parenting, we need to use the building materials of God's Word. We need to use His blueprint. We need to use His tools. And as we do this, it's more than just teaching our children right doctrine. It's teaching them right living. One of the things that I learned in retail management years ago, one of the first trainings I received was the MGR acronym for, uh, for coaching. It's model, guide, and reinforce. Model, guide, reinforce. I need to be able to not just teach, I need to demonstrate. The example matters. I need to reinforce when you're doing the right thing as well as rebuke when you're doing the wrong thing. We're going to continue throughout this series to, to look at how to go about it. We'll get a little more specific as we go along. We'll deal with discipline. We'll deal with how to express love rightly. We'll deal with the importance of marriage, how marriage impacts parenting. But understand in all of these things, not any of us gets it right. There is no perfect parent. There is no parent that perfectly reflects the reality of Christ. So we want to do it increasingly when we can't get it perfect. We need to have enough authenticity to admit to our children that we are still struggling with sin ourselves doesn't mean we need to dish out all the details. They don't need to know what goes on, you know, things that are not age appropriate for them to understand. But let's not hide our sin from our kids. Hiding our sins, hiding our failures, hiding our ignorance in the areas that we don't know keeps us from fixing it. Get it all out on the table. 
and we grow together as a family. My prayer for you is that you will, with your whole heart, be able to say, Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Because the primary goal of parenting is to raise fully formed lovers of God. If you get everything else right and you miss that, you've missed everything. And it's never too late to start to show what the grace of God does in a life. So start now. Let's pray. Father, help us to take seriously the necessity of passing on the faith of our fathers to our children. That we might, by our example, by our active, thoughtful teaching of sound doctrine to our children, be able to build a home on the solid foundation of obedience to your word. That we might recognize that anything we're trying to build or do apart from you is empty and worthless. Give us a heart that prioritizes what you prioritize, that values what you value, no matter what the cost. We pray these things in the name of your Son, who died for us. Amen.